You can have a seat as we get started tonight with another week of pastor's class walking through the Apostles' Creed. If you would like a handout, uh, you can just slip up your hand. Brother Greg will bring you one. Uh, if you didn't get one on your way in, you would still like to have one. Just go ahead and slide your hand up now. We'll get you a handout for the evening. That's good. Look at that. Either you've all learned to grab one on your way in, or maybe you've given up on taking one. I don't know which one it is, but one of the two is occurring tonight. So, uh, A couple things I want to mention before we get started, and it may take another second to pray together. Um, I, did, I was thinking about doing a little book giveaway tonight, if anybody would like a book. Uh, one, one of the things we did Sunday night, some of you were there. Uh, we had a Parenthood in the Gospel, and uh, for a couple hours we spent with uh, Dr. Don Whitney, who written a book on family worship. In particular, in that book, he talks a lot about daily uh, in the home, spending a few moments reading the Bible, praying, and singing a song of praise to the Lord. He actually mentioned this uh, to be something done. Typically, you think of like family worship as if you have uh, kids in the home. Particularly, you think of it as a parent of young children. But in fact, this is something he encouraged for all ages and all people. You think it would make sense that in the home, Christians would daily take just a few moments to read a Bible verse, pray, and sing a song of praise to the Lord. I think it's something uh, for us all to consider and to think on, uh, that in our homes, we might worship the Lord like we do at church on a daily basis. It doesn't have to be something that takes an hour. It can be done in five or ten minutes. It doesn't take terribly long. Uh, Don Whitney has a book called Family Worship. It's in our uh, bookstore here. Uh, if you'd like to have or pick one of those up. But I picked up one of his other books. I thought, well, we'll look at another one. And I'll read this real quick to you. I thought it might be of encouragement before we get started. His book here is 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. So before we get started, I like to read the 10 questions. And then if somebody would promise me that you'll read it, that's the only guarantee, slip up your hand and I'll be happy to give you this book. Here's the 10 questions. The first one, uh, do you thirst for God? Number two, are you governed increasingly by God's word? Do you continue to see his word working in your life? Number three, are you more loving? Do you see yourself as you growing as a Christian, you ought to be more loving? Number four, are you more sensitive to God's presence? Are you more sensitive to God's presence? Number five, do you have a growing concern for both the spiritual and temporal needs of others? Do you have a growing concern for the spiritual and temporal needs of others? Number six, do you delight in the bride of Christ? Do you, you delight in the church? You, you enjoy the church. I'm assuming most of you here on a Wednesday night, most of you probably say yeah. Number seven, are the spiritual disciplines increasingly important to you? Are the spiritual dis disciplines, are they increasing in your life in importance? 
Number eight, do you still grieve over sin? Do you still grieve over sin? In fact, oftentimes, the mark of a person as they grow as a Christian isn't that they see less sin in their life. You actually end up seeing more. You don't, don't think if you start to see more that you're not. It's the fact is you're, you're starting to grow and see things that before, as Psalm 19 would call, your hidden faults, things you had not seen yet. Number nine, are you a quicker forgiver? Are you faster to forgive? Number 10, do you yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus? 130 pages, short read. Would anybody like this book tonight? Would enjoy reading this book? Anybody here? Miss Jones, you would, would you like this book? See, look, nice and easy. Perfect. Good. Made it without feedback. Thank you, Christina. You probably caught that. All right, so uh, hopefully that'll be something for you to pick up if you like. It's in our bookstore. Uh, if anything, it's good every once in a while to think where are you at spiritually, how are you growing, and to put some sort of plan behind it. Secondly, I'd like to take another moment. We don't uh, do this every single week, but I would like to take another moment and pray uh, for a couple of different things. Um, first, several of you have asked, he's on our prayer list, uh, about Elmer Dryden. Many of you know Elmer. Uh, and uh, Elmer had last Friday or Saturday, I think pneumonia crept up on him and put him in the hospital and has impacted both his lungs and uh, his heart. And so uh, while he's been in the hospital this week, they're trying to work out medicines. He may get out by this weekend. However, uh, still should be a matter of prayer. Um, Elmer is 89 years old, and I think within the past couple of weeks, was still out building wheelchair ramps with hearts and hammers. And so uh, just a testimony to his service to the Lord and the godly man he is, the love he has for our church, very, very much love. And Miss D as well, think about uh, if you know D, uh, he, he's the primary caregiver for her, so that just kind of compounds some things for them. So just, just be in prayer uh, for Elmer and D, and we'll pray for them tonight. Um, they mean so much to many of us in here. Uh, second thing, just uh, we could pray for it as well. As you know, as we continue to see the flu virus traveling at a rapid rate, and there's lots of different folks that are impacted, you know, just from classes to teachers to healthcare individuals, everybody who's around it. Uh, and even, you know, there's that old coronavirus that seems to be traveling too. So probably worthwhile to devote a couple minutes to prayer about all of that. So if you will, let's pray for a moment, and then we'll jump into our time together tonight. Let's pray. I'd like for you right now in your seat to think of one person you know that is sick or maybe in the hospital or faces some sort of surgery that's coming up. Just, just take a moment and lift them up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for Elmer and Dee Dryden and how much they mean to many of us in here. And Lord, we pray right now you would strengthen Elmer, you would strengthen his lungs and his heart, and that they would find the right medicines to be able to 
help him to recover quickly. We'd ask that he be able to come home from the hospital soon. We pray in the meantime you would provide and care for Dee as well. Lord, we just thank you so much for them, their love for this church, and many of us here. Lord, we also pray for those we know that are sick, have the flu, or any other illnesses. We pray you would strengthen them, help them to recover quickly, and even for those that serve as teachers or healthcare workers that many times are out on the front lines with so many people that are sick, Lord, we pray you would protect them and strengthen them in this time as well. Lord, for those of us that are here that have our health, that do feel strong and well, we thank you for that. We thank you for your provision to care for us and to allow us um, to have good health. That's a gift from you, Lord, that we oftentimes don't thank you enough for. And Lord, we, as we come to your word tonight, we ask that you would allow this time to be encouraging, help us to learn more about you. And Lord, may this be a time of spiritual growth for us as well as knowledge as we study your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so tonight we are on to the phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate. I have to admit, maybe you feel this way as well, that when I first read that, I thought, how in the world am I going to talk about suffered under Pontius Pilate uh, for the entire time? Like, what, what exactly is behind a phrase, uh, in particular, that speaks about Pontius Pilate and suffering? Um, but, one of the things we'll kind of step into tonight is, in particular, the idea of the suffering of Christ. It's one of those things that if you read the chapter uh, from Moeller, he talks about how oftentimes when we think about Christ's work, we think about the cross and we think about the resurrection, but oftentimes his life of suffering that led up to the cross is not something we typically think about. Now, I do understand the cross is central. I, I don't want to take away from that. However, I, I think we miss this idea of a suffering Savior. And in particular, we'll walk through Isaiah 52, 53, which is the prophecy about this coming and what's known as the suffering servant. We'll look at that passage because it will be the connector really pointing to Christ. So we'll spend our time in that tonight. Um, but I do want to just... You know, you start to think on this stuff. You think, well, what really was Christ's work on earth? In the book, he mentions, and many of you may have seen this movie, The Passion of the Christ. And you maybe may have seen other films uh, that depict Christ's suffering and all that he went through. Uh, and oftentimes, it, you know, particularly The Passion of the Christ was such a graphic and intense representation of all the physical things Christ went through. And uh, it can be very emotional, it's powerful to see, to think about all the suffering Christ did, in many ways, in our place, so that he might substitute himself for us. And so that's where the term, if you have your notes there in front of you, we always talked about, we use the term substitutionary atonement, thinking about how he is atoning for our sins and he is substituting, he is taking our place so that I don't have to atone for my sin. I'm not, my life is not offered up as a payment for my sin. Christ's 
life is offered up to atone or to pay for our sins. But uh, we don't often think about the term that you see here is substitutionary suffering. That he was suffering in your place. Meaning he took on suffering that would have been on you. He took on this pain and struggle as he went through life. And so what I'd like to do is we'll take this Isaiah 52, 53. We'll look, particularly I want the main part of what tonight we'll be thinking about the suffering of Christ. And then along the way I'm going to pick up some stuff of why in particular the name Pontius Pilate Notice it's Pontius, not Punches, who were here a few weeks ago. <laughs> I get it right this time. But notice, uh, but Pontius Pilate, in particular, why his name shows up in here, we'll look at him for a moment. So we'll, we'll take a little, uh, um, you know, a little detour there. But for this moment, let's look at the suffering servant. Uh, you're welcome. I'll put the scriptures there in the handout. If you want to turn to Isaiah 52 and 53, you're welcome to do that. That's where we'll spend most of our time, scripture-wise, tonight. So the first uh, point, again, I, this week, some weeks I don't, I uh, took them from the book. So if you've read the book, I'll have some additional commentary, but this outline in particular comes right out of the layout that Dr. Moeller gave in the book. But the first way he broke this out was from Isaiah 52, we see the promise of a suffering servant, that it was something that was promised that would be fulfilled in Christ. Notice the verse there in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Meaning that this is going to happen. So I know that you, you don't see the the suffering until we get to 53, but one day this servant is going to come and through his suffering be exalted. And the prophecy says it is a sure thing. And, and to press it further, it's more than a sure thing. It is a real event. Christ really was going to come, walk the earth, and live this out. It's, it's not some sort of figurative, mythological character it's not that we've just known of a historical Christ and we've imposed all these extra things. He actually did live this life of suffering. And in particular, that would be why the writers, again, of the Apostles' Creed, I think, used the specific name of Pontius Pilate. It wasn't that just said he came and lived a suffering life. They hung it on a hook of a historical figure and a name. So there was really a time, and there was really a ruler, and there was really a place where Jesus suffered. And the guy's name was Pontius Pilate. So, so I think there's a level at which when they place the name, because if you look at the Apostles' Creed, the name Jesus is in there, right? The name Mary's in there. So you get, you get these names placed in there, but you don't... You don't all of a sudden, why does Pontius Pilate get put in? I mean, you think of this awful ruler gets placed in there. Let's talk about who he was. Uh, at the time, when the Roman world was taking over certain places, they would put in these rulers to try to keep the people under their rule. 
Because as you would come and take over, the people weren't automatically in love with Rome. So there had to be some sort of uh, rule over top of them to kind of keep the people under control. And so in this place, uh, under this region, the emperor Tiberius, from uh, 26 to 36 AD, put in Pontius Pilate. And uh, he was not a very good guy. Historically, he's not well thought of outside of the Bible. Um, and so I'd just like to, <laughs> the book I was reading today, this wasn't uh, from Dr. Moeller's book, but I was reading another one about him. And they described him as a thug in a toga. So maybe that's a good way of seeing it. Uh, but he wasn't a, good, wasn't a good guy. And in particular, if you were, in a, you know, the Romans didn't rule with, with niceness. You know, there was a bit of an iron fist here. And so this is the description from a Jewish historian. Uh, they called him naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness. He was known for briberies, insults, robberies, outrages, wanton injuries, executions without trial that were constantly repeated, and the ceaseless and supremely grievous cruelty. He wasn't a good man. Like he, Jewish historians do not see this as a good guy. Then you get get to the Bible, the Bible actually has a little bit more of a sympathetic ear. You see him as he's kind of caught here as he is starting to process, is, should he, is Jesus really guilty, is he not? At the end of the day, though, he is the one who will be a part of the group that will crucify Christ. There will be both the people and the rulers combined together to see Christ crucified. So he, he still has Christ on his hand. And so, at the end of the day, Pontius Pilate is not a good man. Um, so, so why is it that he makes this list? I think this was so that you could see there was this real point in real history that a real Christ suffered. And it's pointing us to this name, Pontius Pilate. And so, when we look at this suffering that Christ did, it was a real fulfilled promise. It was a real thing. So here's the first one, the promise. Let's do another one. Um, <clears throat> the mission. Second word you have there. This is what Christ came to do. So notice the phrases here because wasn't that Christ just came to be on the cross. He came to, notice what verse 4 here of chapter 53 says. Surely... He has borne our griefs. He, listen to the phrase, he carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Then we get to the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And we, like sheep, have all gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, clearly hear language of the cross in here. So I don't want to take this apart from the cross. However, his suffering doesn't only happen at the cross. It, it leads up to it through his life here on earth. Meaning that for him, this was part of his Agenda. So let me say, this was, when you go all the way back to Isaiah 53, in this prophecy, he is looking ahead to the day he would come, and suffering 
was a part of what was expected for him to do. Meaning that was, it was part of the mission for him to live out. So when Jesus came, when he was born in a manger, suffering was on the agenda for his life. That's Isaiah 53. It's coming that he would face this kind of suffering. The cross wasn't just his mission. He came so that he might bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. So we have the suffering of Christ. It's promised. It's fulfilled. It's real. Then we have the suffering of Christ was his mission, meaning that when he came to earth, he was going to suffer. And another little side point here, I'm going to maybe interweave a few, a few of these in his points here, is that when part of his mission of suffering, and part of the reason it mentions Pontius Pilate, is because Christ's suffering would be a public display. It wasn't that he went into some private corner room and suffered for us. It was that in front of Pontius Pilate and all the people, he would suffer so that everybody could see. It would be a public thing that everybody could see Christ. So it's a, another subtle undertone of why the writers of the Apostles' Creed would point to Pontius Pilate is because his suffering was public as well. Here's the third one here, his innocence. So part of him suffering was that he didn't deserve to suffer. Suffering wasn't something that was because he had done something wrong, suffering was placed on him. Notice its description here in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb. And I would even press in that quietly like a spotless lamb. Like a perfect lamb, like a sinless lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He didn't give a defense because he wasn't trying to defend himself. There wasn't any reason to lay out his case because he was completely innocent. There wasn't anything that Christ had done. He was pure and spotless and sinless. But notice uh, the next verse here, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So he su I mean, think of even just the shame, suffering, the, what's connected to him here. And notice what it says. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He's sinless. We're sinful. If he had sinned, he... He would have been the one paying for his own sin, right? If Christ was a sinner and he was doing that, he would have been paying for his own sin. But, but he wasn't. He was sinless, therefore he was paying for ours. The innocent one can pay for ours. Think he could have, in that moment, stepped up and declared his innocence and everybody would have had to have listened to the Son of God. He could have called down angels. He could have disappeared and walked out through walls out of the room. He could do whatever he wanted. And in this moment, the sinless Son of God willingly suffered. The key part of his suffering was the fact he was innocent and did not deserve the punishment. He was sinless, perfect, innocent. So there's one piece. So 
we're piecing this all together. We're looking at the suffering of Christ, how it was promised, fulfilled. It was a real thing. We pieced it together that it was part of the mission. It was on his agenda. It wasn't a surprise. When Jesus came, suffering was something he was going to do. And then he didn't deserve the suffering he got. He was innocent of what suffering he faced. Here's the fourth one. His sacrifice. <clears throat> his sacrifice. I want you to take in this next verse. It's, just listen to what it says. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring... He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Moeller said in his book, God, he himself, God, the Father, actively willed Christ's death. This was a part of the plan of God to save mankind. And you hear it in the phrase there. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He did it for the sake of his people. So Christ's suffering, to suffer under Pontius Pilate, was a part of the plan of God to save his people. While Pontius Pilate was a part of the equation, ultimately the one who suffered did it under the plan of God. And you could press it further. The Son of God did not devise this plan. The Son did the plan the Father put in place. I came to do the will of the one who sent me. And you see the son submitting to the father as he carries out the plan. And it was the will of the Lord that he would crush him. He would suffer. Hebrews 9. This is one, ver I didn't, this is one verse I didn't put on your, um, on your handout. But I'd like to read it to you. Because it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting picture of Christ's suffering sacrifice. Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. I'll read them to you. But when Christ appeared, it's up on the screens, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Now put it on Paul's. High priest Christ Walking into the holy places to offer the sacrifices for all of mankind. What does the high priest Christ do? Look what he does. He doesn't do it by the means of the blood of goats and calves. He does it by the means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ the priest walks into there and then lays himself on the altar. He willingly sacrifices himself and he suffers in our place. So... So while the cross is the culmination, we need to see suffering is just as much a part of this redemptive plan to get to the cross and a part of the cross. And so when you say suffered under Pontius Pilate, you see him suffering in your place. His perfect suffering sacrifice. Here's a fifth one. The vindication. So ultimately, this suffering would vindicate and save us. This is why 
This is why it matters. Look at, look at verses 11 and 12. Again, we've been walking through Isaiah 53. We get to the end. Out of the anguish... Again, hear the suffering language. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make, and here it is, many to be accounted righteous. There it is. Through his suffering, his anguish of soul, many will be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So, so his suffering leads to us being accounted righteous. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the prophecy about one. And, and I'll just pause for a moment, and I'll, I don't always do this, but I'll reference back. Uh, for many of you who were here Sunday when I preached the end of Romans 8, and my mind just keeps railing through that. When we, I talk so much about suffering and how suffering is part of how Christ loved us. And so then when that is woven together with us, we are suffering alongside with Christ. It's a part of our identity as well. So let's talk a little bit about how this plays out for us. I want to talk about two types of suffering that Christ endured, and then I'll outline a little bit of maybe some application at the end. Let's look at bodily suffering. So, I like to distinguish bodily suffering of Christ from the spiritual suffering of Christ. And I don't know if we, don't, we always think about these two categories. I think it would be helpful. In particular, the passion of the Christ. We'll just take that as an example. The film gives you a great picture of the bodily sufferings of Christ. And I wonder, some of the, I think the temptations that movie might create is that you mainly get caught up on what he physically went through. But he had more than just physical suffering. But, but it, in much of that you see his physical suffering. Now let me, let me start at base level. Uh, we do know that Christ dealt with the physical challenges of life. Uh, probably the best way to capture it is to think about the temptation with the devil and you know, out in the wilderness. And so there you see he goes through hunger and thirst. He, get, he experiences the struggle of, you know, if you, some of you guys, I mean, if you skip a meal or two, you get a headache, you start feeling bad. It, it's suffering, right? You, you feel bad. And so Christ experienced what it was like to not have a meal, not have water, the physical pains of that in his life. So hunger, thirst, and even I would say like weariness or, or being tired. You know, it, there's a bit of like struggle and suffering that comes from just wearing out, being tired. I think I saw somebody here earlier tonight. I was walking past them. I don't know if they're in here. They walked past me and they just looked. They were in a daze. And I was like, hey, you okay? And they're like, I'm so tired. You know, like I could see it on their face. And so so there's, a, there's a suffering that comes from just being tired, hungry, thirsty. 
And Christ experienced all of that. Just the, the baseline. I, I would even go as far to say he knew what it was like to go without sleep. Man, there's something. Um, I, I have three children that are no longer infants anymore. And um, when I see a new parent and they have a new baby at the house and they're not sleeping, there's a little bit of joy in my heart. I don't know if you have this as well. I just kind of get a little joy out of watching them go through not sleeping. But, but the, you know, you, you have a little newborn, and you go a few nights without sleep. There's something, too. You know, I've heard it said before, they're all like, uh, don't, you go in before you have a baby, they're like, they talk about the shaking baby syndrome, and they're like, don't shake the baby. Don't shake the baby. And uh, I'm like, why would I ever think about shaking a baby? And then you go about five nights to sleep, and you're up at about two in the morning. You're like, what am I supposed to do now? Shake the baby. What's supposed to happen, right? You take a little sleep deprivation, and it messes with you. And Christ knew what it was like to not have sleep, to not have food, to not have water, to be tired. He knew all the physical parts of life to suffer. So there's baseline. Now let's take it a step further and say Christ knew what it was like to experience the pain that he took going to the cross. Because the Romans had torture down like nobody else. They had built from the whip that he experienced to the crown they placed on him to the cross that he endured. All those physical things were meant to just cause pain and not kill. So Christ experienced physical pain of high levels. He knew what that was like. He knew what it was like to experience the suffering of shame and of ridicule and of mocking and rejection and hatred and all the things that come along with that. He knew what bodily, physical suffering was like. Now let's switch over to spiritual suffering for a moment. Meaning, uh, Galatians 3.13 says, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. He knew what it was like, and just take the weight of the word, to be cursed. Meaning that he experienced the wrath of God. So let's get real. This is the real suffering of the cross. That other stuff is lightweight stuff. Why cries out on the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? Take in the weight of 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. I don't know if we ever understand what the suffering of Christ looked like for him to take on that sin that he had never had before. You know, when the, the um, Passion of the Christ came out, and um, when it came out, a lot of people watched it. It was very emotional. I was reading, I believe at the time, I went looking for it today. I tried to find the quote. I couldn't find it. But I, I believe it comes from John Stott's Cross of, Cross of Christ. But in it, he talks about um, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's in there, he's praying, and he's like, Lord, please, you know, if, if you can just take this cup from me, if I, if I don't have to go, and he's like, sweating drops of blood and there's this intense 
agony about what's in front of it, what he's about to suffer. And if I were to press that, one of the examples I brought up, I thought was fascinating. If we would go back in church history, you can even take Stephen who's martyred or other people who were to be tortured and killed for their faith. There's all kinds of stories in church history where there are these great saints who walk into death, they're burned at the stake, and they do it with such boldness and confidence like it's nothing. And the question was posed, how come that an average Christian can walk into some sort of torturous physical martyrdom situation and do it with great confidence, and yet Jesus Christ sits in the garden looking at the cross, which will be physically torturous, and he is sweating drops of blood in anguish. And, I, and the answer that Stott gives, he says, Jesus was never really that worried about the physical. It, the suffering he was going to face with the whips and the, the cross, he wouldn't have batted an eye. That the actual anguish, the suffering, was going to be the spiritual suffering he faced. So then the weight of 2 Corinthians 5, I just read, he made him to be sin is really the heavy statement. So when you watch the passion of Christ, that's the lightweight stuff. When you cry and you see his physical stuff there, that's not why Jesus was, had the anguish in the garden. He had it because of the spiritual suffering he was going to endure. So, he had both bodily and spiritual suffering. And the wrath of God that rested on him, if you believe, you will never experience. In other words, if you're a Christian, you'll never know what that feels like. You'll never know. You never understand it. Even what you endure now is not the wrath of God. So be thankful today as you look at the suffering of Christ and you look at that moment when it was laid upon him that if you know Christ, that rests on him and not you. So let me talk about just a few responses to his suffering. Then we'll conclude. The first one is um, to believe in this great promise of God. Meaning that we had a real Savior and a real Christ who really suffered in your place. The first thing we ought to do is just place our faith in Jesus Christ as our substitute and as our Savior. We ought to trust that you won't have to lay yourself on the altar and pay for your sins one day. That Jesus Christ has gone in and if you place your faith in him, he's the one who was laid on the altar. So, so the first response you ought to have is to repent of your sin and turn from it and turn to Christ and believe and trust him as your Savior. Believe in the promise of God. But then the second I want to mention here, and this is interesting, is to join in Christ's sufferings. I mentioned this earlier as I was talking about the end of Romans 8 and how suffering is a part of the Christian life, how in fact, in Romans 8, we're more than conquerors. We take suffering, flip it on its head, and suffering actually becomes to our advantage. 
making us more like Christ. But Roman, uh, Philippians 3 talks about this. One of my, this is probably my favorite passage in all the Bible. Um, and it talks a lot about suffering. So I'd like to point at a couple things here that are a part of this suffering. But Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have, and here it is, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so take a pause here just for a moment. Um, what the loss he's really looking at in the picture of the first few verses here are all his righteous and proud requirements of anything he's ever done that he thought was good, and he had to lay all those down, so he had to say that I only have Christ as my righteousness. All my religious greatness done, I lose all that, it's trash. In fact, it's to my harm that I think that's to my gain. It actually hurts me. Because if I think I'm righteous, it pushes Christ away and I don't get salvation. So he has to give all that up in his pride and suffer the loss of all sort of achievement he might have before God and come as a lowly sinner. Verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of mine own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then verse 10, these are some fascinating verses. And... Uh, they fit right with this idea of suffering. This is one I've talked about several times. That I may know him. Say, well, I want to know Jesus. This is how you do it. The power of his resurrection. And I may share his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. That, I, by, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what do you gain? In suffering in this life, here, here's the gains. You gain Christ-likeness here and a reward there. That's it. Because it says that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Suffering leads to the fact, and you see this all in Romans, I don't have time to, even in Romans 8, Right? If I consider the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us, right? Second Corinthians 4, this light and momentary affliction, not worth comparing. So there's this idea that the suffering points us to a great reward, but it also makes us more like Christ. Then I'll read one last verse. I'll read it to you. I was going to quote it, but I'll read it. Hebrews chapter 4. Now, I'm not sure exactly how this works, but I know it's comforting. I don't know if you have this up there, Christina. I'm going to start at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And then think about this verse tonight in light of suffering. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. I think that's tightly tied 
to his humanity and what he experienced here. His, in many ways, his sufferings. Yet without sin. So let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, to go all the way back, I mean, you can take that verse and say, well, I have a, I have a Jesus who understands what I'm going through because he suffered and lived this life. That's of comfort. But ultimately, I, just to, to recap this whole thing, I, I think this is where we, we minimize the suffering Savior. We don't understand just how significant it is to our personal walk, our own sufferings, and just how much it's significant to our own salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight. Lord, we thank you for loving us. Lord, Lord, we thank you for the plan that was put in place to send your son so that we might have a savior. And Lord, in this moment, we thank you for the suffering that you went through so that we might right now, in this moment, be able to approach you with confidence. Lord, I pray for anybody here that does not feel loved tonight, that when they see the suffering Savior, that they would see love for their soul. Lord, I pray for anybody here tonight who maybe they're just in the midst of some sort of depressive struggle and suffering and life is just hard. Lord, I pray they'd be able to look to Jesus. They would understand they have one who can sympathize with them. Lord, I pray for those in this room here tonight, maybe that, that aren't Christians. They've never placed their faith in Christ. That, that through this, these few moments, they would see that Christ suffered for their salvation. They might turn their heart from this world and place their faith in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the suffering Savior in Christ. We thank you for this encouraging time in your word and the great hope we have in Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.